in an act of defiance to Jim, the clock hit zero and no one, you were cued, you were even cued, no. Thank you and, and uh, welcome, I guess it's still good morning, good morning for another uh, 16 minutes or so. As Jim mentioned, my name is Bob Vogelar and I am uh, not a part of the staff here, I'm a member that attends just like you, my wife and I have been coming here since 2006. I guess we moved to Liberty in 2006. It was 2007 when we started, and we typically go to the first service. And I will tell you that, yes, there was this hush over the crowd in the second service. The first service, the one I go to, they didn't stop talking through the whole thing. So I had absolutely no control over that crowd at all. Um, but thank you for the opportunity to, uh, one, be a part of the teaching team, and then just to, to be able to come in here and, and share what, what God is doing in my life through the passage today. So if you want to open your Bibles to Acts uh, chapter 6 through 10, just uh, park it in 6 for now. We're going to kind of uh, have several touch points throughout those uh, five chapters. To begin, I want to share a little bit of a story uh, with you. I, I still remember vividly this encounter that my wife and I had uh, in our old house. This was about uh, 17 years ago. In fact, it was in 2000. Um, where uh, I was talking to her in the kitchen of her house and sharing with her that I um, was really struggling, feeling like I'm just kind of coasting in uh, my relationship with Christ. Life was good. I loved where I worked and, and who I was uh, teaching with. I was teaching in North Kansas City, and uh, we just bought a new house. We were settling into our marriage. I mean, life was just really, really good, and a complacency had just kind of crept in. And so... Um, I asked my wife, I said, you know, I feel like I need to be praying that God will bring um, some hardship our way, something that will rattle our cage, something that will just remind us of our need for him and our dependency on him. And so I invited her to join me in that prayer that we would um, just experience something that just rattles our cage. And I remember probably more vividly her response, um, which was, no, I will not join you in that prayer. Uh, She's a wonderful lady, but basically what she was saying is, why would I pray that if my walk isn't coasting, right? Yours is. Maybe you just should pray for that. But it was, a, it was, it was one of those uh, experiences where um, I just knew that if something didn't rattle my cage, I might just coast right, right into um, silence about the one who had saved me, the one who had redeemed me. And, uh, and I don't know if this is human nature, if this is just Bob Vogelar, but uh, when things go well and right in my life and, I, and, and everything is just wonderful, I start to fall in love with the world. I just start to fall in love with the temporary stuff. And if I'm not careful and if I don't have people in my life to help me grow through that, uh, that complacency really comes down to me striking kind of a peace treaty with the enemy. Um, I think Satan would love it if I just parked it on a shelf somewhere and didn't say anything about my faith and just enjoyed the stuff of this earth. At least I see that, that part of his strategy in his interaction with Jesus. You remember in the New Testament, Jesus is in the desert and Satan approaches him and does these temptations. And in Luke chapter 4, it records it this way, that, that uh, Satan took Jesus to a high place and he showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world and he said, um, all of this, all the authority and splendor of this, I'll give to you if you just bow down and worship me. Basically saying, Jesus, if you just strike a peace treaty with me and you stop right here, I'll give you all of this temporal stuff. And that peace treaty is a real threat um, to lost people around us. 
Because if an entire generation of people strike that peace treaty, then when we die, the word of God dies, right? I mean, no one comes to Christ. We are one generation from extinction. And so it's a very dangerous place to be. And, and I remember that vividly because that's my nature and because um, I think it's a concern for the whole body of Christ. At least I hope it is. I hope that strikes a chord with some of you. I know in my world, you know, we say things like knock on wood or don't jinx it when, when life is good and we don't want anything to change. Um, but persecution and the rattling of the cage does play an important part in us getting um, our walk right with God. It's difficult to speculate, but I think that so much growth of the early church was due to the immense opposition that it faced. In fact, as I studied this passage, um, I, I began to kind of venture to guess that maybe it was the persecution that was recorded in these verses that provided the incentive to scatter the seed to the Gentiles. In other words, and Gentiles are any non-Jew, basically us. If, if, if this scattering didn't take place, if something didn't rattle the cage of the early church, I wonder if maybe there would have been no reaching out to the Gentiles. And the reason I say that is, in this week's section, you'll see it in Scripture that, that persecution escalates to the point of death for a man named Stephen and this rapidly growing body of believers is driven out to new audiences with the message of hope. And one of those new audiences are the Gentiles. Our section of scripture, in fact, finishes with Acts 10.45, where the uncircumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. They were astonished. You remember the slide from last week, the proclamation in Acts had a decidedly Jewish, Jewish focus initially. Uh, it took opposition by the Jewish religious leaders to cause the early Christians to look beyond Jerusalem and beyond the Jewish population. Think about this through the lens of the disciples. They were uh, trained by Jesus for three years. They walked with him every day in his ministry. And during those three years, they heard things like, like in Matthew 10, 5 and 6, Jesus instruct them don't go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. The disciples could have drawn the conclusion during this period of time that the message of Jesus our Savior was a uniquely Jewish message. It flowed out of the Old Testament prophecy. It was a part of God's unfolding plan. And the disciples were known to kind of miss the mark a little bit over the course of that three-year ministry. And so... Without, without anything pushing them or provoking them, it's likely that they would have probably stayed in Jerusalem a lot longer. And then if they did leave, it's likely that they would have stayed with that Jewish target audience. So thankfully, Jesus' words in Acts 1.8 expressed a commitment from Jesus to do so much beyond the comprehension of the disciples on a global scale. Acts 1.8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I imagine that this may be why the early church was allowed to encounter significant persecution. Stephen was Christianity's first recorded martyr. The martyrdom of Stephen triggers a scattering of the church to Judea and Samaria and sets up God's plans for the ends of the earth. The promise in Acts 1.8 takes a giant step forward because of what happens in chapters 6 through 10. You see, God used Stephen as a catalyst to ignite his plan to fulfill Acts 1.8 for both Jews and Gentiles. 
A catalyst is defined as an agent that provokes or speeds significant change or action. Think of it this way. When fire investigators suspect arson, they look for something called an accelerant. This would be a flammable source that's out of the normal that acted as a catalyst for the larger fire. So gasoline or other flammable liquid that shouldn't be present at the scene but was, that might get labeled as an accelerant as part of the investigation because of its role in being a catalyst um, rapidly expanding the fire under investigation. So the keys to understanding what I mean when I, when I call Stephen a catalyst or having a catalyst role is to understand four things about his life and how those four things can be a model for us today. So this morning and soon to be this afternoon, I'm going to be talking about Stephen in four ways. Stephen the man, I'm going to talk about the message, the martyr, and the mission. So let's start with Stephen the man. Who was Stephen? What I like about the character study that I did on Stephen is that I learned that he really was probably just a regular guy. He was a regular person like you and me. He wasn't a trained religious leader who was converted to Christianity. He wasn't a converted Pharisee or converted teacher of the law. It doesn't say that explicitly in the text, but I think that if he was, it would have been stated explicitly in the text because um, in, a, in a court of law, uh, someone like that who is against you, who is your enemy, who then comes to your side is called a hostile witness, right? They should be giving testimony against you, but they're giving it for you, right? And so it stands out as an incredibly persuasive element in a legal sense. And so I think that if that were the case, it would have been expressly fleshed out in Scripture. It certainly was in the life of Paul. Um, so I think he, he certainly may have had Jewish training, certainly had that upbringing, but wasn't among the uh, religious um, uh, leadership of the day. Um, he was a Jewish person who actually was culturally Greek. They called these people Grecian Jews or, or Hellenistic Jews. He, he wasn't among the 12 disciples, so he didn't walk with Jesus during his three-year life in ministry. He really was just a regular guy who came to Christ through the testimony of someone other than Christ himself, which again makes him a lot like you and me, right? Somebody who had an encounter with Christ shared that encounter with Stephen, and through that individual, Stephen came to a saving faith in Christ. We should really be able to identify with Stephen. But don't confuse Stephen's ordinariness to mean that he was not uniquely and powerfully used by God. Stephen had an inward fullness. In fact, the word full is used repeatedly to describe Stephen. Stephen was full of the spirit and wisdom. In Acts chapter 6, the apostles had a bit of a crisis on their hands and they chose to settle it by saying in verse 3, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. And so since Stephen was among those who were chosen to settle this dispute, uh, we know that he must have met that criteria, right? Additionally, in verse 5 of chapter 6, it says that Stephen was full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And in verse 8, it says that he was full of, great, of the grace of God and of power. Notice Stephen is described as being full of these things. He wasn't filling with these things, but he was full. I want to point out something else in the text that is a bit of a side note. Stephen was not among the hearers when Jesus spoke the promise in Acts 1.8. That target audience were the disciples, specifically those who had walked with Jesus. Acts 1.8, of course, says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. 
Yet this is how Stephen is described. This tells me that Jesus was not merely uh, reserving this promise for the apostles in this one-time-only circumstance of the coming Pentecost. He wasn't saying that, hey, this is really for your ears. Don't try to extrapolate or generalize this out to all believers. Instead, the opposite, I think, is more true. Jesus is intending that promise to be true of all believers. And we certainly see it being true in Stephen, who wasn't in that initial target audience. He is willing to give this promise answered in Stephen's life. He's willing to give it to you and me. I think we can confidently go forward with the expectation that we can claim a promise like that in our own walk with Christ. I also want to note that Stephen isn't just described inwardly in these passages as full of faith and power and the Holy Spirit, but we also learn something about how he came off outwardly too. Stephen stood his ground in a debate. Acts 6.10 tells us that others could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. This tells us that Stephen was someone being used mightily by God to influence others for Christ. He was a servant and an evangelist. We also see in chapter 6, verse 15, that Stephen was someone who experienced peace in the midst of adversity. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. What does this mean? It means that in the midst of what would ordinarily be a tremendously stressful situation, he had the peace of God present on his face. You could see that there was a stark contrast in how he responded to that situation and how a typical, ordinary person would respond. Our takeaway based on who Stephen the man was should be that God uses ordinary people because he is an extraordinary God. If God only used superhero believers, we might just start to think he needs superhero believers. He doesn't. He doesn't need us. He welcomes us and he invites us to be part of his plan and part of his unfolding purpose to see lost people who matter desperately to him come to a saving faith. Stephen was a lay person just like you and me. He was not a professional theologian, yet God decided to fill him with his spirit and with wisdom, with faith and the Holy Spirit, with his grace and with power. And guess what? God has chosen to do the same with you, with me. We too can be people full of faith and the Holy Spirit, full of God's grace and power, filled in such a way that the world cannot help but take notice. Now that we've looked at the man of Stephen, let's look at the message. What was going through Stephen's head when he was called before the Sanhedrin? This is in Acts chapter 7. And Acts chapter 7 lays out the the longest spoken message in the gospel recorded in the book of Acts. Stephen responds to a whisper campaign of rumors and false testimony. But if you read this, you'll notice that he doesn't refute those lies and rumors directly. Instead, he responds by preaching the word of God to Jewish leaders. Now think about this. He's not a part of the trained Jewish leadership, but yet he's preaching a survey of the Old Testament. And how this through line of action through all of this points to Jesus as the Messiah. It's pretty bold of him to do that as a layperson. So he stepped into what would normally be a situation where I think I would say, no way am I going there. 
I'll, I'll attack the lies and the rumors. But he goes right at a survey of Scripture. I don't want us to get lost in the particulars of this message in chapter 7 as much as I want us to see that chapter 7 displays how Stephen knew God intimately through Scripture. These were the five basic parts of his speech to the Sanhedrin. So now from this, how do I come to conclude that the sermon reveals Stephen's intimacy with God through Scripture? Well, he had to have such a command on Scripture that he could roll through such an extensive defense of Christ as Messiah laid out across the totality of Scripture. We're spending, think about it, we're spending an entire year doing this in the Bible Initiative, right? And I imagine that if you were to add up all the clock hours of the staff in creating 52 weeks of daily opportunities to engage each cross-section of Scripture, it would amount to a ton of time in the Word. And then if you followed along with each day on your own, you'd have a much better understanding of how Christ unfolds as part of God's plan from the beginning, over thousands of years before our Savior was even born in the New Testament. You don't have that kind of command of God's Word, and you don't see the through action of Christ unveiled in Scripture without being in Scripture a lot. Because Stephen was on the ready to speak these words, it's reasonable to conclude that he was spending a lot of quality time alone with the Lord through his word. And, and keep this in mind, too. Um, for us to spend quality time in the word, we, we grab a bound book or we open up an app, right, that we carry around with us all the time. Um, back then, it wasn't like that. They had scrolls that are rolled up, big cumbersome things that they didn't just carry around. It wasn't very portable. In fact, Paul even says in one of his letters, you know, come visit me and bring my, the parchments, bring the scrolls, right? Because it, it was cumbersome and big. So for somebody in that time to devote the kind of time in the Word to intimately know God had to mean he made it a very, very high priority. Additionally, he had a command not just of Old Testament history knowledge, so it wasn't like the Pharisees who also spent a lot of time in the Word, but he also had God's unfolding plan for the Messiah as part of it. A plan that was a mystery even to the most highly trained Pharisee. Yet Stephen knew it, revealing that a relationship with God existed because it is only by a relationship with God that that veil is lifted. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, he says, The God of this age... The enemy, Satan, the God of this age, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You only get this kind of illuminated clarity on God's word by spending extended periods of time alone with God in his word and in prayer in the context of a personal and intimate relationship made possible through Christ. An application point here, or a takeaway from Stephen's message, is to get into God's Word a lot. Where's your barometer on that? Open up God's Word in worshipful engagement as frequently as possible. I had a guy who discipled me years ago, and he would always ask me, is your beak in the book? That was his way of saying, are you opening this up? Are you spending time getting to know the one who would give everything to save you? So open it up. Not just on Sunday morning, but every day. God wants us to be on the ready with a message. He wants us to be equipped with this message of hope that changes eternities. And we become equipped through repeatedly engaging God in His Word. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, a very popular verse, 
Sometimes when, the, when verses become very known to us, we kind of forget the, the power of it. But 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says this, All Scripture, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And verse 17 explains why it's useful for that. So that the person of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We spend time in God's Word to know Him and to be equipped to make Him known. Are you equipped? Open up God's Word. Carve out time alone with Him. And I want to share with you a little bit of an aside. When I meet with God, it's not rocket science. I go through five R's. And these aren't my five R's. The guy who led me to Christ and discipled me passed on things that kind of helped me not just open a book and read it like a textbook or like a history book, but read it like I'm engaging in a relationship with the creator of the universe. And so he gave me these five R's to kind of catch me when I'm drifting into just reading it like a book. And those five R's I want to share with you, I've shared these before with some people, but these five R's help me know whether or not I'm really engaging in a worshipful connection with my Savior. So the first R is when I sit down to have a quiet time in the morning, I pause before I ever open this book and I rejoice that I even get to spend time with the Savior. I rejoice because there's no way I deserve to be there. The only reason I get to have a quiet time, the only reason I get to dig into God's Word, the only reason I get to have any understanding from my time in God's Word is that my separation-worthy sin was paid for by Christ and His righteousness is given to me unconditionally and unearned. Absent that, that curtain is closed, that holiest of holy place is not within my access. I don't have an opportunity to meet with Him. So it makes sense that I should begin by just rejoicing that I even get to do this. That's worth rejoicing about. Next, after I rejoice, I read. I read whatever the passage is for me that day. I've got reading plans and I go through it, but I read after I rejoice. And then after I read, I spend some time reflecting on what the passage says. So the third R is I reflect. I ask myself, what does it say and what does it mean? I pray through the passage as I reflect. Father, show me. What what do you want to stand out? What should catch my attention as I read this? Then the fourth R, after I uh, reflect for a while, as I relate the passage to my life. How does it apply? What what are my takeaways? And then I finish with with some time set aside to respond back to God in prayer. That's it. That's, That's my quiet time. I rejoice. I read. I reflect, I relate, and I respond. And that's not just my quiet time. That's how I prepared a message. I do the same thing. Sometimes the quiet times are 15, 20 minutes. Sometimes they're longer than that. But that's my way of catching myself when I just crack it open like I'm reading a textbook, which doesn't allow me to get to know the Savior. You may have a different method, a different a system you use, a special place. Whatever works for you is fine as long as it's not just you engaging in a head knowledge exercise with the Word of God. Stephen had an intimate walk with God. He knew God through his Word. Okay, we've talked about the man and the message. Let's talk about the martyr. Where was Stephen's heart at the end of his life? 
If you look up martyr in the dictionary, it will likely say a person who was killed for a religious cause, okay, or something like that. But that is not what the word used to mean. Believe it or not, we get our English word martyr from the Greek word that Jesus used in Acts 1.8 for witness. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. You will be my martyrs. Back then, a martyr was simply a witness to the life-changing presence of a holy God transforming someone with the power of the Holy Spirit. The witnessing part came because when this happened, the new believer was bursting with talk about Jesus. Do you know anyone like that? They can't shut up. And the changed life caused people to take notice. Stephen was a witness for Christ, a martyr for Christ, not because he was killed. He was killed because he was a martyr for Christ, because he was a witness for Christ. When Jesus said, and you will be my martyrs in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, he was actually saying that no matter where you are and no matter what is happening to you because you're a witness for me, I will be with you. As you put on display an invitation for others to receive the same beautiful relationship with Christ that you have, Christ is with you. And the power you have is his power. What did Stephen put on display for others to see? Stephen the martyr displayed more fullness when he showed full intimacy with Christ as evidence in chapter 7, verse 55. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. This reflected an intimacy that he had. Because the reason in the text, you know, the, all the, the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders of the Sanhedrin got really angry when he said this. The reason they got really angry when he said this is because what he was saying is, I have access to a face-to-face relationship with God. I see heaven open and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And they're mad because, no, 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 you you go into a holy of holy places and only I can do it and you're not allowed. And so it angered them. But Stephen revealed his intimate relationship with God when he said, I see heaven opening up and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He also showed full surrender right after that in the way that the beaten and bloodied Stephen relinquished his spirit without a fight. In Acts 7.59, he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. The person who had the look of an angel on his face, the peace of God with him, was fully surrendered to him, even in what would be an inhumane, unimaginably horrible set of circumstances. And finally, Stephen showed full forgiveness to those who were committing this huge injustice to him. Remember that all of this started because people couldn't stand up to his wisdom. They couldn't debate him, so they resorted to conspiring lies and rumors. Despite this travesty of justice, Stephen, in Acts 7, verse 60, fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Stephen gave witness in that moment that a reconciled relationship with God made possible through faith in Jesus Christ fills a person with intimacy in their walk with God, fills a person with surrender to God's will no matter what, and fills a person with a readiness to forgive. My takeaway for Stephen the martyr is that Stephen displays a witness 
displays as a witness to the very nature of our Heavenly Father. I want to carve out a little time to draw your attention to one thing that jumped out at me. Notice that Jesus is seen standing at the right hand of God the Father in Stephen's words. How do we typically see Jesus referenced at the right hand of God? Seated, right? Seated at the right hand of God. But here Stephen says, look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Why do you suppose that is? I have a theory. I don't know. I'm speculating. But I believe it may have something to do with Jesus displaying the character of God described in Isaiah 30, 18. Turn with me there. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18. I don't think it's a coincidence that in this moment, Jesus is standing at the right hand of God the Father. Isaiah 30, verse 18 says this. This is Isaiah talking about the Lord, giving us a picture of his character. Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion. At this very moment, when Stephen most desperately needed to experience compassion, Jesus literally rises to show it. He takes a stand for Stephen to welcome him home. The full compassion of God is given to Stephen at exactly the right time when Stephen needs to experience God's compassion the most. We have been invited into intimate fellowship with God, and this means that He is responsive to us when we need Him most. Isaiah 26.3 says of God, You will keep in perfect peace Him whose mind is steadfast. And steadfast just means unwaveringly fixed on God. You will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. We can turn to God in our most difficult circumstances. He rises to meet us in those moments. He rises to show you compassion. Now that we've looked at Stephen the man, we've looked at the message as well as the martyr, my final point is to look at the mission. We owe so much to Stephen for his faithfulness to serve God no matter what. As tragic as the stoning of Stephen was, that event allowed his life and death to be a catalyst for mission work that changed eternity for countless more souls in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What do I mean by this? Following, immediately following, not just following, but immediately following Stephen's death at the very beginning of chapter 8. Look at that. Luke writes, On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. The byproduct of persevering in the witness among everyone who was scattered is that crowds were hanging on every word. It says that in verse 6. There was deliverance and healing in verse 7. People who encountered the word expressed great joy in verse 8. And most importantly, verse 14 revealed that all this labor resulted in people coming to Christ. So this message of a hope is now getting outside of Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria. Wherever the people were scattered, they were still not shutting up about Jesus. And every Gentile believer in this room, every one of us, owes a great debt of gratitude to Stephen's faithfulness because Stephen was a catalyst for Saul's salvation. 
So what can we take away from the mission, work, and legacy of Stephen? Stephen gave his life so others might get life through Christ. Stephen gave his life so others might get life through Christ. What I want to see more in my own life is this nature that Stephen had. He was merciful to those who did not deserve mercy. Of all the things Stephen could have said in his final words in Acts 7, 60, he chose to say, Lord, do not hold this against them. And right there, witnessing those words was Saul. Saul was an enemy to the Christians. He was their chief persecutor. Yet here is Stephen praying for Saul and others in his dying moment. What a witness. What a legacy for us to the mission of God through Christ. You see, we are eternally blessed by that prayer because God answered it. And because God answered it, an outreach occurred to the Gentiles. An outreach came to a population of people that were not previously included in this message of hope. You see, just two chapters later, Saul encounters Christ face to face. Saul becomes the Apostle Paul about whom Christ said in Acts 9 verse 15, This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles. We are here nearly 2,000 years later because God answered Stephen's dying prayer in the life of Paul. He reached into Paul's life and forever transformed his eternity. And then through Paul's ministry, God transformed the eternity of every successive generation of Gentiles and Jews. As a result, the gospel eventually led to an outreach directly to you and me. I got to hear about Jesus from Brad Blake 29 years ago because Stephen was a catalyst for that message to reach Brad. Also, how awesome it must have been that when Paul died and crossed over and heavens opened up for him and he got to see the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, how awesome it must have been for Paul also to be shoulder to shoulder with Stephen praising God for all eternity. I mean, imagine that. Enemies, one looking upon the approval of the murder of the other, came to a point in Philippians 3, 8 through 11, where he said, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The one he hated. He said, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. I want to know Christ, he says later in that passage. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. That's Philippians 3, 8 through 11. And now here's this guy whose last shoulder-to-shoulder encounter with Stephen was hating him. Stephen praying for him. And now for all eternity, the two of them are shoulder-to-shoulder. Praising God. Do you have anybody in your life that you feel hates you? Are you praying for them? Are they on your heart with the hope that one day, maybe on the other side of eternity, I would be blessed to get to worship God forever with that current enemy? I want to close with this. Stephen's life nearly 2,000 years ago played a significant role in history and for history 
God allowed Stephen's martyrdom to move the message of hope out from the scattered of the day and on to you and me today. I'm sure that Stephen didn't have the believers here in this room on the other side of the planet 2,000 years in the future on his mind when he committed his life in service to Christ. But I believe God did. Today, we got to witness Stephen's life and death again. If you've never encountered the person of Christ, but you're looking at this man, Stephen, who would give it all for this Savior, and you want to know a little bit more about him, just know that there are people here who are available to talk to you about that. The same Savior who transformed Stephen's eternity is standing today to transform yours. He rises to show you compassion as well. As for those of us who put our faith in Christ and are on this journey of becoming more like Stephen, more like Christ, can you imagine someone 2,000 years from now whose face might be impossible for you to picture? Can you see them being in eternal fellowship with God through his or her faith in Christ because you were available today as a catalyst for God? I never think about somebody 2,000 years away from me who might have a saving faith, faith for all eternity merely because I said, God, I want to be a catalyst for you. Use me. Jesus' words in Acts 1.8 apply to us today still. Whether it be right here in our own neighborhoods or across the state or nation or even to the ends of the earth, it's never too late to be a witness, to be a martyr. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this little section of Scripture in Acts that I confess often just gets read over and, and missed and just the opportunity to pour in a little deeper and be cut open about the significance of it for me, for all of us in this room. Whether we have a relationship with Christ now or we, or we don't, the truth still remains. You stand ready to fill us with the Holy Spirit and with power. In Jesus' name, amen.